This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear John Ball. And I could tell very quickly from their excitement level, I was the first woman they had ever talked to in real life or the world of Warcraft. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to say, holy camoles, we are so thrilled with how well the Risk book is doing We're out on tour. I'm in a hotel room right now in Minneapolis. We sold so many books at our Chicago show that we had no books to to sell in Minneapolis. I suppose that's a good problem to have. I hope everyone in Minneapolis is getting it elsewise. Like, for example, from Amazon, which reminds me of the greatest song ever written. Review the Risk book on Amazon. Review the Risk book on Amazon. If you review the Risk book on Amazon, then the book will sell much more. If you review the Risk book on Amazon, then the Risk staff will be less poor. Review the Risk book on Amazon. right. If you haven't reviewed the Risk Book on Amazon, get on over there and give it a good review. That really helps the algorithms get the book selling more. You know, Ilana Glazer of Broad City, she said, Risk gives a platform to stories rarely heard, to people rarely represented at their most insane experiences. This book pushes us to live lives that inspire stories like these, to take risks you want to live through to tell stories about. Publishers Weekly said the book evokes both laughter and sadness. These are fascinating, affecting confessionals that are sure to reach readers beyond the podcast scope. And that's exactly what we hope. We hope that the book reaches readers and then turns them on to the podcast. So get lots of copies, early Christmas shopping, and leave your review on Amazon. Also, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? I always am. 
Well, if you've been fantasizing about surprising your lover with a new toy or an adult movie, here is an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com, and for a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any item, and they have thousands and thousands of items. But that's not all. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive a free sex swing. (laughs) You can hang the sex swing to your door and then hang on tight. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on the whole order. So go to adamandeve.com today for this special offer, 50% off one item. You type in risk for the offer code at the checkout. You get the free sex swing, free shipping. The offer code is R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought, <clears throat> excuse me, they dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. Fuck my voice. What's going on? <clears throat> froggy. I'm froggy today. This is Fujia and Miyagi behind me now, which takes me back. I mean, we used to use their songs in season one back in 2009. Uh, we are calling this week's episode Coming Clean. Three stories that were recorded in three totally different cities in this crazy time where we are doing shows all the hell over the place. And it's a great episode today. I have to give a little Patreon shout out to Joyce Gonzalez. She is our latest Patreon patron who is giving $25 or more per month. Whenever someone donates that much to us, we give them a little shout out on the show. If you don't know, on Patreon, you can access all 402 or so episodes of the show, plus lots of bonus stories, videos, photos, my audio check-ins. You can get ad-free episodes of the show where we cut down a lot on the promotional talking that I do. A lot of people don't like so much of that, so there's a lot less of it on our ad-free episodes. So yeah, become a patron of ours and help keep this running at patreon.com slash risk. Let's dive right in. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Shane Smith who shared his story at our last show that we did in Atlanta, Georgia. But before that, we're going to hear from a guy who writes for National Lampoon. He's currently writing National Lampoon's high school yearbook parody project called A Searing Depiction of Generation Z. He's one of the writers on that project, and his name is John Ball. Here is John Ball now at the Risk Live show that we just recently did in Boston with a story we call The Dow of Jorbatron. I spy with my midlife something clicking in 
In the world of Warcraft, players roam the plains of Azeroth, smiting orcs and wizards, and legend had it, the best guild of all was ruled by a beautiful woman named Jorbatron. Everyone wanted her attention and adoration. And to even be considered for entrance, you had to woo her with exotic enchantments and rubies. But what these players didn't know was that Jorbatron was really a fat, 12-year-old little boy with a bowl cut, and that boy was me. (laughs) But... Having an army of sugar daddies in this game was something that came after years of hard work. When I started, I had nothing. It all happened one day when I was collecting wolf pelts for a shaman. And I click a button and my character goes and I shapeshift into a bear and my pupils dilate and just this explosion of dopamine starts going through my body. And as a depressive kid, this rush was exactly the type of thing I wasn't getting from normal social interaction. And I decide I'm gonna chase this dopamine for the rest of my life. But here's the thing. When I started, I didn't have anyone to play with, and that was problematic for two reasons. One, the loneliness, and two, in World of Warcraft, if you don't have people to protect you, there are gamers who will kill you and wait for you to resurrect and kill you over and over and over again because they have nothing better to do. And One day I see I'm getting followed by this gnome wizard. And as they get closer, I realize it's a sexy gnome wizard with gargantuan breasts. (laughs) And they do exactly what I mentioned before. They just camp over my body and keep on killing me. And that dopamine I talked about before, I couldn't get it. And I needed it again and I decide I will never have a gnome situation ever again. But I needed friends to protect me while I got stronger. But there was one problem trying to find friends in the world of Warcraft. I was a kid and you had to use voice chat in this game to communicate efficiently and anyone who heard my voice knew I was very young. And finally, I found this group that would maybe let me play with them, but As I could hear from them talking about their 16-year-old kids getting laid off from their trucking jobs in the 2008 financial crisis, their average age was about 30 to 35 years old, and they go, yo, Jorbatron, do you have a mic? Because if you don't, you can't play with us. And I was like, okay, I need this so bad. So I grab my mic, I whip out my deepest voice, and I go, what's up, you guys? In my high-pitched 12-year-old squeal, and it was radio silence for six seconds. No one responds, and I'm so worried they're about to start laughing or tell me to go play with my mommy, but instead, one of them goes, wait, are you a girl? And I go, yes. I am Kim, and I am 26. And I could tell very quickly from their excitement level, I was the first woman they had ever talked to in real life or the world of Warcraft. (laughs) 
and they tell me they're so excited they want to make me their guild master. But, but first, they, they want to do something. And I'm hoping for some type of ceremony for them to christen me as their leader. Maybe some epic chanting in the Alathai Basin forests or, you know, getting some special robes. But instead, they get as many men in this chat room as possible. And a ringleader goes, order, order. And then Golden Shower Boy 84 comes forward, a trucker from Southeastern Freight Lines, and I can just hear the vodka coming off his breath as he goes, how do women pee with no aiming mechanism? And I think, I can't just not know how women pee or something's gonna be fishy. He's gonna know I'm lying. So I call my little sister and I go, Lisa, how do, how do you pee and aim? And she was about nine years old and she goes, you can't, it goes everywhere at once. <laughs> and, and, they, and Golden Shower 89 was eating that up and then the next one, Pussy Slammer 69 goes, where is the clitoris? And I didn't know what this clitoris thing was, but I could tell it was very precious. And so I just go, below the boobies. And, he, and they go, and they go, ah, yes, below the boobies. And that satisfies them for a while. But I was glad to give them, put them to work to, for them to get more information about it and boy did they work for it six months pass i'm playing every single day with these guys all the time and to keep them happy i'm giving them more and more false leads about the female anatomy and they're loving it and they're buying me anything i want in this game they start to buy me uh, pegasuses they buy me rubies and crystals and piles of gold coins and I had hundreds and hundreds of these things. And real money, it was probably about $80. But to a 12-year-old, it was like hundreds and hundreds of piles of gold coins. And I should have been scarred by the sexual advances they were making. But because I was so blissfully innocent to any notion of adult sexuality, I was glad to oblige in anything they wanted for another Pegasus. And there, were, there was one day where, in real life, my dad, he sits me down and he says, John, the economy is really rough right now, and we're going to be having some trouble paying the bills around the house. And I go, Dad, what are you talking about? The economy is amazing right now. My guild is doing great. And that was eight months in. And by this time, I'm gaining a lot of weight. I, I had tried to quit the game a couple times, but you know, anything else just, I couldn't put it away because I just loved talking with these men about what made boobies feel good too much, I guess. And so this was 12 months after day zero by now. I was playing this game, it had become pretty much fully integrated into my lifestyle, I didn't do much else. And I start a raid that I didn't know would be my last. And so we fight through this dungeon and we get to the Lich King. He's a boss so powerful, he can kill 
some of your weaker characters with just one hit and he releases a necrotic plague and I'm taking so much damage. I, I cast rejuvenation and my life blooms aren't blossoming and my character goes, I need more mana, I need more mana and I die on the spot and I say, Kalthazor, cast rebirth, Kalthazor, cast rebirth and he's not responding, nothing's happening. I hear over his mic a woman go, you're playing this game too much. And Kalthazor goes, no, I'm not. Jorbatron understands me. I need this. The woman responds, I don't give a fuck about Jorbatron. Come eat dinner with the family. And then all of a sudden, this guy disconnects from the game. He's gone, and we all die. This was a classic case of what we called wife aggro in the business. (laughs) which is when your wife gets really angry at you and pulls you away from the video game. And this is when any good guild master is able to rally the troops, is able to say something motivating and say, guys, we're gonna finish this raid. We've only got another five hours, but we're gonna make it happen. (laughs) And that's when I say, okay, the guys are pretty tired. So I go, all right, guys, let's just give it a bathroom break. And my voice cracks so loud over the microphone. I push my computer away. I close my laptop screen as fast as I can because I think they realize I'm a pubescent boy. (laughs) And thinking back on it, I did it so fast, but these guys were dependent on me. I mean, think of it this way. You know, 12-year-old boys are so insecure about voice cracks already. Imagine if the emotional, spiritual, and sexual well-being depended on your prepubescent voice for these 25 laid-off truckers. (laughs) And this game, I had been trying to quit for years I could all of a sudden quit cold turkey. And, you know, I made friends in real life. I started to really apply myself in school. I lost weight. I forgot about it. A normal person would have felt guilty for what they had done to these guys. I was just glad I got out of there without having to face any of them. And then this one day later, I'm in economics class, and the teacher asks us to talk about a time we had a crazy idea that made us some money with what we were doing. And I said, oh yeah, this one time I, I pretended to be this woman named Jorbatron in World of Warcraft, and I made all this money off these crazy guys. And then the economics teacher goes, wait, you're Jorbatron? <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys. Ask her if she likes baloney. It's probably a man. Why is it a man? Because everyone just makes stuff up on these things. It's probably a man pretending to be a woman, okay? So picture a fat guy with a little wiener. (laughs) What should we write? I have a big wiener. I want to poop. Back and forth. What? What does that mean? Like, I'll poop into her butthole, and then she'll poop it back into my butthole. And then we'll just keep doing it back and forth with the same poop. Oh, my God. I'm going to put that. I want to poop 
in your butthole and then you will poop it back into my butt and we will keep doing it back, back and forth and forth with the same poop same poop forever So growing up, I had a really weird relationship with my dad. But nobody told me I had a weird relationship. In fact, I thought everything was completely normal. I thought everybody had a dad just like mine. I thought everybody's dad called them into the living room of your single wide trailer when you're eight years old in the middle of winter and said, hey boy, I got a job for you. I want you to take this money across the street. You know that, uh, that boy across the street right there, right? Take this money across the street to him. Give him this money, but don't look in the bag he gives you back. He's gonna give you a bag back, don't look in it, and bring it back to me, can you do that? Now everybody here, when you're eight years old, wants to help your dad out. You wanna do anything you can to be a part of the solution, not the problem, so I say, yeah, daddy, I can do that. So I run back to the back bedroom, I throw on some tennis shoes with Spider-Man on them, and I throw on my Goodwill coat, because we didn't have no damn money, and I set off into the night for my adventure. I'm gonna walk across the street and help my dad. So I'm walking out the door and I start thinking, give the guy the money, don't look in the bag. Give the guy the money, don't look in the bag. And suddenly, I start remembering this commercial I see every single day during cartoons. And they show an egg and they say, this is your brain. And then they crack that egg into a pan and they say, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And suddenly I had questions. Am I on my way to my first ever drug deal at eight years old? The answer was unequivocally yes. And my brain immediately goes back to all the times I've been in the grocery store with my mom. And she's had a grocery cart full of groceries. And she gets to the counter, looks at the bank balance and says, well, your dad had to buy something this week. You know, we ain't got enough money for all these groceries. We're just going to put a few things back. It'll be fine. And I got pissed off. I'm not going to be a part of this. So I wheel around on my foot with all my eight-year-old determination and I head back in the house and I say, Daddy, I don't care if you whoop me, I ain't gonna buy you no drugs. I thought everybody had a dad just like mine where when I got called one day into the office at school and they said, we wanna test you for the gifted program, I was super stoked. I took my paper home. All I needed was one signature from my parents to test for the gifted program. I thought this was the golden ticket. I get home and I sit them both down at the kitchen table of our trailer and I say, I need to tell y'all about this, okay? They want me to test for the gifted program. If I get in, I'm gonna be doing work that's way more advanced than everybody else, okay? I'm gonna be doing experiments in class. We're gonna go on badass field trips. My mom jumped in. She was always real supportive and she goes, did they pick you because of your grades? Yeah, mama, they picked me because of my grades. This might even help me with college. What do you think, daddy? My dad goes, you know what I'd do if I was you, don't you, boy? No, daddy, what? I go in there and I fail that test. My mom went to jump in and say something. She was always real supportive and always wanted to help me out. But my dad puts up his hand and says, no, no, no. See, I had friends who tested for the gifted program in school, and all they got was a whole bunch of extra homework. You don't want a whole bunch of extra homework, do you, boy? No, daddy, I don't. Now, I didn't get into the gifted program because I took my dad's advice, but I always wondered if my dad was worried that at 11 years old, me being in the gifted program was starting to surpass his ninth grade education. 
I thought everybody had a dad who one night, me and my mom and my little brother come home from shopping. We've been gone about three hours. And my dad had come home. His pickup truck was in the driveway. But when we get home, we've moved away from the trailer. Now we're big balling. We're living in a brick house. And when we get home, there's no lights in the brick house that are on, but the front door is standing wide open. It's the middle of winter. Why the hell is the front door wide open? My mom starts looking through the front window and going, what in the world? Where's your daddy at? And as we get in the driveway, I start thinking all these thoughts. What if somebody attacked my dad? What if there are robbers in the house right now? What if he's dead inside? What if they forgot to pay the power bill? Because when you're poor, that's something that happens. And my mom was just a few feet ahead of us as we got out of the car. And as she gets to the door, she's way ahead of me. And I hear her go, what in the world? What are you doing? Get up. As I get to the front door, I realize our front door wasn't standing wide open. Oh, no. It was laying in the front living room. My dad got to his feet, drunk as hell, and said, well, when I got home, none of y'all was home, and I couldn't find my keys. My mom jumps in and says, what do you mean you couldn't find your keys, you idiot? You drove home. Obviously, your car is here. Where are your keys? They went on to argue about this and a whole lot of shit at the time. But when you love somebody, you're willing to do whatever you can to stay with them. Now, this wasn't the only time that my dad did something like this, where he showed up drunk at the house. My dad was not above getting into an argument with my uncles, with his boss, Jimmy, because they would sit around and start drinking and they start talking about something that didn't really matter at all. Like who was a better wrestler, Bret Hart or Sting? And my dad would suddenly get really upset about it. And before you knew it, they would start wrestling around, joking. And before you knew it, punches would fly because my dad was not afraid to take things too far when it came time to take things too far. So on Saturday afternoon, I'm laying on a single bed, watching a 19-inch black and white television, watching the Georgia-Tennessee game, and it's gonna be a perfect day. It's one of those days where the air outside is finally starting to take that turn from being that warm bathwater feeling you get at the end of summer to being that really crisp fall air right at the beginning of fall. I had a part-time job, I had a great group of friends, I had a girlfriend. I was gonna be a lawyer one day. I was doing really well in school. And this day was gonna be great because my little brother had gone to work with my dad. He had gotten up early and gone to work with my dad, so he was out of the house. My mom was off cleaning, doing all sorts of stuff around the house, listening to music, so I had the whole place to myself. It was gonna be perfect. And on this day, I was feeling especially proud of myself because the night before, I had performed at my own football game, but not during the football game itself, oh no. I had performed at the halftime show with the marching band because there's no way to tell everybody at school that you're a cool kid other than performing a synchronized marching routine in front of the entire student body during halftime. But I didn't care. We had nailed it. And I knew that I had done a badass job. So I'm enjoying my day. I'm watching the Georgia-Tennessee game. When about halfway through the second quarter, I hear my dad's tires bark in the driveway. And when I say they barked, I mean like when you're driving along and you stomp on your brakes way too fast. Suddenly I hear my dad's doors of his truck fly open and the side door of my house flies open. And there's a huge commotion coming from my kitchen. And I hear my dad go, Darlene, Darlene, Darlene. I'd never heard my dad be this desperate before. Now he's yelled at me, at my little brother, at my mom, at every animal we've ever owned in our entire life, but I'd never heard him sound like this. And as I'm laying on this twin bed, all I can think in the back of my head is, Jesus, he did something ridiculous 
and now Hammer, my brother, is hurt, and it's going to take all day to work this out. They just ruined the perfect day. So I swing my legs off the twin bed I'm sitting on, and I start walking down this long hallway that we got down to our kitchen. As I'm walking down the hallway, I'm thinking, we're going to be in the ER all day, because this is before urgent care. You had to be in the ER for like five or six hours and shit. I'm thinking, God, they ruined the perfect day. It was beautiful outside. It was going to be a beautiful day. And as I take a left in the kitchen, that's when I saw the blood. I walk in, and my dad's wearing this white UGA shirt, and he's got blood all over the front of it. When I say he's got blood all over the front of it, I don't mean like he cut himself shaving. I mean like something has gone wrong, and he is hurt, or somebody is hurt, and nothing in the room is making any noise. I can't see anything else except that blood. When a couple seconds later, my mom comes in from my right and breaks the silence. What's going on? Oh my God, who's hurt? Are you hurt? Is Stevie hurt? What's going on? And my mom starts going back and forth. My dad says, hold on one second. I need to tell you what happened. My mom's freaking out. And my little brother, Stephen, is racked with sobs. He is pouring tears. So I don't understand what the hell's happening. All I know is my perfect day has been ruined and I'm kind of annoyed because I'm 14 years old. My dad says, well... We was at work earlier today, and Jimmy gave Stevie some of that chewing tobacco. Now, I told him before, don't give Stevie no chewing tobacco because he did it and it made him sick. And Stevie started puking in the apartment that we were in. I said, Stevie, you need to go lay down in the truck. I'll be out there with you in a second. My dad said he went inside and talked to his boss, Jimmy. And he said, what are you doing giving my boy chewing tobacco? And they went back and forth and they argued for a few minutes. But my dad said, you know what? I'm going to let it go. We're going to get our work done and we're going to leave. Everything's going to be fine. My dad went back to start doing his work. He was a house painter, and he was hanging some doors after they got through painting this apartment that he was in. And a couple of minutes later, his boss, Jimmy, comes and says, Smitty, this door right here won't close. And he starts trying to close the door, and he says, this door won't close. You obviously hung it wrong. And my dad says, no, hell, I didn't. That door will definitely close. Jimmy says, no, it definitely won't close. And they go back and forth and start arguing. And then they start arguing more. And my dad says, we went back and forth, and, and you know how big he is, Darlene. He, he was so big, he was on them steroids the whole time. And you know how, what size I am. And we get in a fight, and we start going back and forth, and he gets me on the ground, and he starts stomping me with his foot, stomping me. And he starts pointing to his chest. In between the blood, you can see an outline of this shoe print on his chest where this guy had stomped his chest. And in the middle of my mind, I'm thinking, this is probably some shit that he could have just ignored if he would have just walked away and everything would have been fine but my dad goes on he says after this guy jumped me and stuff like that we got in a fight and stuff I got up and he walked away and I decided there's no way I can let somebody punk me like that I can't let somebody punk me like that not in front of my boy my brother Steven was in the truck he didn't see this shit but in my dad's brain they were getting drunk and high all day he needed to show this guy and he said Darlene all I wanted to do was scare him I walked out to the truck and I lifted up my seat and I grabbed my gun I walk back inside. I walk back inside to the actual apartment that we were in, in the room that we had gotten in a fight in, and all I was going to do was scare him. And I walk in the room, and he tackles me. And when he tackles me, the gun went off. And it kept going off. And I shot him, Darlene. I shot him. I shot Jimmy. And those words just kind of hung there for a second. This is a guy who'd been to our house, a guy whose family we'd gone to church with, and my dad shot him. The perfect day was not only ruined, it was kind of fucked up at this point. My dad immediately goes into damage control and says, you know the cops are going to be after us. We need to run to Mexico. We need to get in the car. We need to go to Mexico right now. Let's grab you and the, both the boys. Let's get in the car, grab my guitar, and go. My dad cared about four things in the world. 
me, my little brother, and my mom, and his 1972 Les Paul Gibson that he kept in the case from the original time he bought it in 1972. And just a little bit of secret between you guys and me, he might have sold me out for the guitar and just taken my mom and my little brother and the guitar. My mom being the adult in every conversation that we got in said, no, let's just go to my mom's house and figure out what to do next. So in a flash, me and my little brother are in the bed of my dad's truck because back in the 90s, nobody had any clue about your kids flying out of the bed of the truck. They just threw you in the bed of the truck and it was fine, right? Like you guys have all rode in the back of a truck, right? So we're sitting there in the back of the truck and my little brother, who's usually this bubbly, happy kid, this kid who's always got a joke, always telling jokes, always looking to be funny, is now shell-shocked. When he came in with my dad and I saw the blood on his shirt, he was pouring sobs, pouring tears. He was just so distraught. But now we're in the back of this truck and all he can do is just be quiet. And he's asking me questions under his breath like, you think we're gonna be okay? You think daddy's gonna be okay? I'm six years older than my little brother and I don't have any of the answers to any of these questions. All I knew to say was, I don't know what's gonna happen, buddy, but I know we're gonna be okay. But we weren't. We made it down to my grandmother's house and me and my little brother were sent off to another room because back then, you guys know what I'm talking about, when your parents went to go talk to somebody, you were sent off to another room to go play. Adults needed to talk, kids needed to go play, right? And that meant that my dad was gonna go hang out with all my uncles and drink cheap ass beer and tell his story over and over again. When a couple of hours from then, the cops finally did their job and found my dad. And they called him at my grandmother's house. And I remember sitting there in the front room as my dad's on the phone in the kitchen, because back then they didn't have cell phones. And he's sitting there and I hear his side of the conversation and it sounded kind of normal. Yeah, this is him. Yeah, about 2.30 today. Nah. Yeah. No. No, I didn't know that. Oh, shit. Yeah, I'll be there tomorrow at 9.30. And he hung up the phone. Now, as a 14-year-old kid, this sounded like two adults talking about when they're going to get together for dinner. This didn't think like something serious had happened because back then, I watched all the cop shows. They would kick your fucking door in and make sure everybody knew you had fucked up. But as my dad hangs up the phone, he says, they just told me Jimmy died. When my dad went in and fought with Jimmy that day, the gun went off five times. When he tackled it, the gun went off one time on the floor. The gun went off one time on the ceiling. One time through Jimmy's leg, one time through his arm. And the one that killed him was the one that went through his carotid artery. The next few weeks are this blur in my mind of visiting my dad through glass and having to use a little phone and stuff to talk to him. Court visits and adults all around me whispering the words like, intent, malice murder, the death penalty. Everything changed in just a second. My dad ended up getting life in prison for killing his boss that day. And when I talk to him on the phone nowadays or I see him at visitation, he always wants to talk about the good times. He always wants to talk about the way things were. You remember that Spider-Man boat we had that one time? We went to the lake and we played with it back and forth. I sure do hate we lost that boat, but we had so much fun that day. Don't you remember, boy? You remember all them concerts you had and all them football games you played? I wish I'd have been at more of them, but when I get out of jail, we're going to be able to make up all that time. But I always say, Dad, let's not worry about making up time. Let's just worry about getting you out of jail. Because for him, that day, everything fucking stopped. And when he gets out of jail, in his mind, there's going to be a 14-year-old and an 8-year-old waiting for him. He didn't get to see what happened next. 
He didn't get to see me go from being the kid who had a part-time job and plans on being a lawyer to working full-time just to keep the family afloat. He didn't get to see us get thrown out of our house and have to move to a completely different school district and my mom had to drive me back and forth to school. He didn't get to see my little brother, this happy, bubbly kid, turn into a kid who was so full of rage and anger that every time anybody would even mention my dad, he would end up in a fight. He got thrown out of school after school after school and finally ended up having to drop out of school. My dad didn't get to see any of this stuff. And I spent years being fucking furious with him. But the thing I realized was I was never meant to live that life that I'd imagined for myself that one day on the single bed in the back of our house. I wasn't supposed to be a lawyer. I wasn't supposed to stay in marching band and all that stuff. My dad missed all of the major events in my life. My wedding, my kid's birthday, all of my performances. But I realized that maybe he wasn't a bad guy. Maybe he wasn't a malicious person. Maybe he was just somebody who was never equipped to have kids in the very first fucking place. And I wasn't meant to be any of the things that I'd imagined. I wasn't meant to be the husband, the father, and the man that you see standing before you today. And I guess I have to be thankful for that. Thank you. This is Risk. This is The Clash behind me now. And we just heard from Shane Smith. Now, Shane shared that story at the last Risk Live show that we did in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, he has a podcast of his own called Now That I'm Older, and he shares a lot of personal stories on his show with his best friend, Kenny. So go check that out as well. Before that, we heard... (laughs) A little interstitial that was kind of put together by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. It was selections from some scenes from the movie, Me and You and Everyone We Know, by Miranda July. You know, these days, you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. You can listen to it whenever you want, right? So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages? You can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all of the amazing services of the post office, but right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer, and then your mail carrier picks it up. We have used stamps.com at risk and at the Story Studio for about seven years now, and we absolutely love it. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. 
So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our final story on today's show comes to us from a very dear storyteller from the New York scene and the Los Angeles scene. She's kind of bi-coastal in the places that she's consistently sharing stories. Terry Mintz has her own storytelling show called Word, and you can find it at wordthestorytellingshow.com. Terry shared this story at our Los Angeles show that we do once a month at the Bootleg Theater. Here she is now. This is Terry Mintz with a story we call Befriend. I fought the law. So my name is Terry Mintz, and I am what you would call a friend of the friendless. But not just the friendless, the toxic, the neurotic, the depressed, the insane, the inane, the inept, the confused, the sociopaths, the narcissists, the unempathetic, the dysfunctional, the socially retarded, the undateable, and the physically repulsive. <laughs> this all started back at seven years old when my one and only friend in the world, Andrea Bolander, very seriously told me that she could no longer be my friend, although she liked me and thought I was nice. She politely pointed out that staying friends with me, the third fattest kid in the class, would make her very unpopular with the other second graders. She might lose her social standing all the way to sixth grade. So she dropped me and saved herself. And there I was, at seven years old, with not a friend in the world. But I said to myself, I will not be an Andrea Bolander. I will befriend everyone and anyone who comes my way, no matter how repulsive they are. I swore this to the heavens, that this person, these people will not, will not, I say, go friendless. They will have me. And so it was. Each person was a mission with their own unique set of problems. They were needy, time-consuming, a full-time job. I foregoed marriage, children, a career, getting a dog to concentrate on them. Because if not for me, who else would? Every year I took more and more of these helpless, 
needy people on, and they wanted so much from me. Food, money, jobs, cars, dates, places to live, pet sitting, house sitting, plant watering, house cleaning, moving help, airport rides, storytelling advice, or just calling me 15 times a day to cry about their miserable existence. It never ended. It was never enough. Things were spiraling out of control, and I realized I needed a life of my own, a relationship, maybe a cat. So I stopped taking on new clients and I cut back my hours. And I finally had some time for myself. It was fantastic. I even managed to find a boyfriend and I got to spend more time with my high-functioning friends who had other friends besides me. Life was good. It was about me now. I was free to do anything. These losers weren't holding me back. I was free to fly and reach my highest potential. I had sabotage caring for all those fucked up, demented souls that were trailing along on my slipstream. (laughs) Then the phone rang. She said her name was Patrice Walters. Do I know you? Yes, I met you at Claire Parton's yard sale. You gave me your card. Claire Parton's yard sale? Uh, yeah, um, that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> what can I do for you, Patrice? Oh, I'm just calling it catch up. <laughs> catch up? I didn't even know her. Then, It all spills out. She tells me she has no money. She tells me she needs friends. She tells me she's looking for a support system. She tells me she has stage three cancer. Shit, damn. I had to be strong. I promised myself I was not taking on anybody new. I can't. I won't. No, no. So I mustered up all my strength and I said, Oh, Patrice, I'm so sorry. I wish I could help you, but I'm actually going back to New York for five months and I won't even be here. Which was true. And she said, Oh, well... Thanks anyway, and please don't tell anybody I have cancer. I don't want their pity. That night, all I could think of was that Patrice, this person I barely knew, actually didn't know at all, had no money, no friends, and stage three cancer. It was haunting me. I couldn't sleep. No friends, no money, cancer. No friends, no money, cancer. No friends, no money, cancer. Over and over and over in my mind, and it wouldn't stop. So from that moment on, I was on a mission to find all her long-lost friends and tell them she had cancer. (laughs) 
even though she told me not to. Because what? Was she gonna be mad and stop talking to me? I didn't even know her. So I got on Facebook and I contacted all of her friends on her friend list and I said, hey, your friend Patrice has cancer. Call her, help her, be there for her. And it worked. She now had this little support team in place to drive her back and forth to chemo. But she still needed money, so I called a meeting. I told her friends who actually knew her. I said, hey, listen, you guys, you need to find a way to raise money and pay her bills because I've done all I can do and I'm leaving town. And they were like, yeah, no problem, we're on it, okay. Next thing I know, I'm in charge of an online fundraising campaign from New York. I asked everyone who knew her and didn't know her for money. I begged, I pleaded, I demanded people donate money. It took all my time. I was obsessed. My boyfriend, Kevin, would be knocking on my office door telling me we would be late for an event. And I'd say, I need more time. I'm fundraising for Patrice. I'm about to hit my goal of $25,000. And he'd say, who the hell is Patrice? Her bills were now getting paid. So I moved on to curing her. Yes, I researched vitamin therapies, clinics in Mexico and Costa Rica, organic diets, aromatherapy oils. I spent so much time on this, my other friendless, needy friends were being neglected and started filing complaints. Bipolar, suicidal, friendless friend Rachel Hirsch sent an email saying, Terry, it seems your focus has shifted meaning away from her, and she needs to part ways because she felt that I didn't have enough compassion for both she and Patrice simultaneously. I do, Rachel, I do have enough compassion. Narcissistic friendless friend Cindy called to say, Terry, remember who your real friends are. I'm your real true friend. I love you. I knew Cindy at that point for two weeks. <laughs> no matter what I did, Patrice kept on getting sicker. Five months later, I flew out to California and I took her to her favorite Starbucks. She looked like she had gone from 180 pounds to 80 pounds. She was on tons of pain medication and she had tubes and bags attached to her body under her clothing and she could barely walk. Over her favorite flat white cappuccino and blueberry scone, which she picked at, she said, Terry, I know you've done a lot for me, but I need one more favor. Sure, Patrice, what? Anything. I need for you to kill me. 
Look at me. I can't take this much longer. I've been stockpiling pills, or maybe we could figure out another way to do it because assisted suicide is not legal in California. Yes, I said. Me? Why me? Me? What about your friend Jill? Jill you've known for 20 years. Terry, Jill's married with children. She doesn't have time to kill me. (laughs) What about your friend Shannon? Shannon, you've known since second grade. Terry, Shannon lives in Vermont. What about your brother? Your brother! Terry, I haven't talked to my brother in five years. I hate him. No, it's you, Terry. You're the only one who could do this. We just have to figure out how. I sat there thinking, how the hell did I get myself in this situation sitting at a Starbucks on Lincoln Boulevard plotting Patrice's murder-suicide? I'm too nice. This was all Andrea Bolander's fault for defriending me in second grade, that fucking bitch. So I said, Patrice, I have a long list of friends I've known for over 30 years that all want me to kill them. So you're just going to have to wait your turn. And it's a long wait. (laughs) That made her laugh. Oh, Terry, you're so funny. I'm sorry I missed your last storytelling show. But seriously, how are we going to do this? I think I might be ready to go in two weeks. Maybe less. Patrice died naturally four weeks later. This person who came to me a year before telling me she had no money, no friends, or support system, passed away peacefully in her own apartment and not a facility and not alone, which was her biggest fear. In her final days, she was surrounded by friends who loved her, And even her brother, who hadn't talked to her in five years, was there holding her hand as she made her transition. And in spite of all the complaining I've done about being a friend to the friendless, Patrice taught me that it's okay to reach out and ask for friendship. And it's okay to reach back and be somebody's friend. That being said, all you losers out there who want to friend me on Facebook after the show, take a number.
is all for this week's episode of Risk. Uh, this is wet behind me now, and we just heard from Terry Mintz. You know, the Risk staff is pretty big now. It's a lot of amazing people from actually very different backgrounds and very different lives, and that's why we love to discuss risk stories after the live shows or after episodes go up. We have very, <laughs> very mixed feelings and very disparate thoughts about the things that are expressed by our storytellers. So, risk is an amazing jumping off point for heart to heart discussion on our team. I, I think we've all grown a lot closer to one another, unpacking how we feel about the stories, you know, comparing our philosophies, comparing our, our moralities or our own life experiences. And I really hope that you share the show with people who mean a lot to you in that same way. I always say that on risk, we don't necessarily endorse every point of view expressed on the show. We certainly wouldn't recommend that everyone try everything that the storytellers have talked about trying, right? We're just trying to create a space where people who seem to be trying to be honest and who seem to be compassionate in the way that they're sharing can express their own interpretations of the things they've lived through. I'm constantly having to explain to fans no, I personally do not believe in ghosts. Or, yes, I, I totally understand that someone with a drinking problem might not like the way that that one storyteller talked about a night of drunkenness. Or, yes, I totally understand that someone struggling with schizophrenia might be triggered by that one storyteller talking about her dreams. Or, yes, of course, I understand that a woman might feel differently about the tone of voice, you know, the vocal intonation that that one storyteller was using than a man might feel about it. Or, yes, I hear that you might feel that some storyteller was a narcissistic sociopath and was just making up his story out of whole cloth. But I didn't feel that way when I sat down with him. I'm always having to tell fans even about my my very own stories. Stuff like, oh, well, I haven't been to that kink camp in six years. So I have no idea if I'd recommend it to you. Maybe it's not a healthy place for some folks now. We can't run the show as if it's a how-to show. We can't let risk be risk if we're constantly trying to make sure that every thought and feeling expressed on the show 
is a one-size-fits-all healthy way that we recommend all our listeners should think and feel. That's why we on the staff have such passionate debates and in-depth analyses of these stories afterwards. And I hope that you and your friends do too. <laughs> okay, now I must tell you where we are coming next. On August 16th, we will be in Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. That will be a book reading and book signing Fabulous. That's going to be so much fun. We're going to have several people from the book there on August 16th in Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe at 6.30 p.m. On August 17th, we will be back in Baltimore at Creative Alliance with an all-new Risk Live show. August 17th in Baltimore at Creative Alliance. On August 18th, will be in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat with an all-new Risk show, all-new stories. On August 18th, we'll be back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And on September 6th, we'll be in Portland, Oregon. On September 6th, we're in Portland at Revolution Hall. On September 7th, we're in Seattle, back at the Vera Project on September 7th. On September 8th, we're in Vancouver at the Biltmore Cafe. Come on out on September 8th, Vancouver, to the Biltmore Cafe. And then on September 20th, we are at NYU Bookstore. NYU Bookstore on September 20th. That is a book signing and a book reading. That will be fabulous. Now, on October 4th, we're going to be returning to Denver. On October 4th, we'll return to Denver at the Bluebird Theater, and uh, we are taking pitches for that show. So pitches go to risk-show.com slash submissions. All you have to know about pitching us is right there, risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Review the risk book on Amazon. Review the risk book on Amazon. Let me try it again because that wasn't my best performance of the song. All right, here's how it goes. It goes. <clears throat> Review the risk book on Amazon. Should I go higher? Review the risk. I'm not, 